Hello, and welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and we're back for another week discussing the magical alchemy of musical creation. Thanks, as always, so much to everyone who's been listening, to everyone who's written in with suggestions. My lord, I have this huge list of incredible music that I'm thinking about doing on future episodes of this show. And in addition to being useful for the show, it's just cool to have a reminder to go back and listen to all these great songs, uh, many of which I know, some of which I don't. So thanks so much for sending those in. And just for everyone who's taken the time to write in and also to share the show. We're doing well on the uh, Apple Podcast app. Get We've got a lot of ratings and a lot of reviews. Please leave a rating and a review if you like what you hear that that does help more people find the show as always you can email me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet at me at kirk hamilton that's k-i-r-k hamilton i also really appreciate everyone who's told me that they're spreading the word in particular i'm hearing actually from quite a few music teachers who say that they're playing it for their students and i've actually also heard from some music students who say that they found the show and are listening to it which is the coolest thing um, possible that just makes me very happy I keep this show totally family-friendly so that younger listeners can appreciate it. And um, yeah, it's really, really neat to hear that students would be listening. I was a music teacher myself professionally for for quite a few years in the early 2000s. I was also lucky enough to attend a really amazing public high school in Indiana that had an incredible music program. So I was very fortunate that basically changed my life and set me on a musical path for the rest of my life. So I think music education is really important, I guess, obviously, or I wouldn't be doing this show. But it, it is very cool to hear that it's playing some role in other people's music education. A couple more things before we get started. I have made a Spotify playlist with all of the songs that have been featured on this show so far, as well as all of the songs that I've featured on my other podcast, Kotaku Split Screen, during the Kirk's Music Pick section on that show. So it's a pretty cool, very eclectic uh, Spotify playlist that's on the show notes if you want to listen to it. In addition, I have a mailing list. I have created a new newsletter with Tiny Letter, and you should sign up for it. It's going to be pretty cool. I think I'm going to send very infrequent updates, maybe one or two a month. Um, I'll talk a little bit about my own musical projects, my own writing. I'll share some things that I've read that I think are cool. I'll definitely share music that I've been listening to that I like, Um, maybe some recommendations that I get that don't make it onto this show, but I still think are worth sharing will find their way into that newsletter. I'll also definitely be talking a lot about strong songs and maybe some additional thoughts on each episode. Episode, that kind of thing. So it's pretty casual. If you want to sign up, you can go to tinyletter.com slash Kirk Hamilton. There will also, of course, be a link in the show notes. So if you would like to sign up for that, please do. Okay, on to this episode's strong song, which is one that I've been planning to do since I basically first had the idea for this show. It is a song like so many of the songs we have talked about that begins with a question. It's actually a two-parter question, and it goes something like this. Is this the I mean, is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? After many minutes and many key changes and tempo changes and groove changes, the answer we actually come away with is sort of a letdown. It's time to dive into Queen and Freddie Mercury's iconic genre-blending masterpiece, Bohemian Rhapsody. (laughs) 
From that dreamy choral intro to that melancholy final gong hit, Bohemian Rhapsody has more stylistic left turns than some entire albums. And I think that that unusual approach to form and harmony and arrangement is a big reason that this song has remained essentially untouched uh, for the 45 years since it came out in, a, in kind of an unusual way for a, for a really famous song. Um, so I think it's going to be really fun to pick apart on this episode. There's a whole lot to talk about, and I want to get right into it. First, some vital stats. Bohemian Rhapsody was written by Freddie Mercury and performed by Queen, whose personnel include Brian May on guitar, John Deacon on bass, and Roger Taylor on drums. Freddie Mercury, of course, the lead singer of Queen, was the lead singer on this track, also played piano, did a lot of the arranging. May and Taylor also sang on this track. It was produced by Roy Thomas Baker and included on the 1975 Queen album, A Night at the Opera. As a side note, I really recommend going and listening to all of A Night at the Opera from start to finish. I think a lot of people know a lot of Queen songs, but don't necessarily know their songs in the context of the albums on which they were released. And that is actually a very fun way to listen to this song. Um, it comes near the end of the album. The album is all over the place stylistically. It's got hard rock. It's got that I'm in love with my car song that um, Roger Taylor sings. It sounds like an ACDC song. It's got My Best Friend. It's 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 all over the place, man. It's a great album. Really recommend listening to it, especially because of where Bohemian Rhapsody comes in and how even at the time listening to that album, it's got some good songs on it, but Bohemian Rhapsody stands out. It's clear that this is a song that Freddie Mercury had been, you know, working over in his head for years. It's just got so much information in it and so much going on. There are some pretty grand songs on the album, but this song stands apart. So I really recommend listening to it that way. Before we get into it, one other thing I should mention is the movie... Bohemian Rhapsody, which is named for this song and includes a pretty fun recreation of the recording session that led to this song. Um, that movie is kind of controversial, especially among major Queen fans. I saw it in theaters, not actually knowing a ton of the story of Queen, and I thought it was a pretty entertaining movie. Then I went and read a lot of articles about the many ways that this, the movie kind of misrepresented Freddie Mercury and rearranged things, and it made me like the movie a lot less. So I'm, this isn't a movie podcast. I'm not going to really get too deep into that, but it is worth mentioning since that's one reason that a lot of people are talking about Queen. The movie definitely benefits from having a lot of Queen music in it because Queen turns out totally awesome band. So um, it does have that going for it. And I thought that their recreation of the Live Aid performance um, at the end of the movie was, was pretty incredible. But yeah, definitely some problems there. All right, let's get into the song. So the thing that makes Bohemian Rhapsody stand out to me more than anything else is the song's form. So I think we should just start by outlining the song and talking about its form. So song form is something that I've mentioned on this podcast before. Generally, song form refers to the parts of the song and how they are arranged. So, you know, the intro and the verse and the chorus and the bridge. Those are kind of the, the main, you know, parts of a song. And then how you arrange them, that makes up the form of the song. Uh, musicians call this the roadmap sometimes, uh, depending on what kind of music you're reading. It's just, you know, it's like you go to the verse, then you go to the chorus. It's, it's how the song is put together. This song doesn't really follow that kind of form, and it's extremely unusual in that respect. As a rock song, as you know, as a sort of popular music 20th century song. It doesn't have a chorus, it doesn't have a verse, it just has different sections. So in music, there's a term for this, it is called through-composed. And I would say you could safely describe Bohemian Rhapsody as a through-composed song. So 
already it sets itself apart from just about every other song that you'll hear on every other popular album from the 1970s or really beyond. So first up, let's just break down each of those sections in order. It starts with a sort of a dream choral section. It's just Freddie, Freddie's voice multi-tracked a bunch of times and Freddie playing piano. So very Freddie Mercury centric introduction. Then the band kind of comes in one at a time during the next section, which I think of as sort of the soliloquy. So we have the dream chorus first, and then I guess the soliloquy, it's like a monologue where we meet the main character of the song and the rhythm section comes in. So first we have John Deacon comes in on bass for a little while, then things ramp up, Roger Taylor comes in on drums. Then uh, that's when Brian May comes in. Brian May's intro is a big deal, we'll talk about it in a little bit. And he sets up the next section, which is the sort of I don't even know how to describe it. It's the outlandish cosmic section of the song. So we've gone through, the soliloquy goes on for a little while, and then suddenly this full choir is in. We've got we've got Taylor and May are both singing. It's bouncing vocals around everywhere. The key completely changes. The vibe completely changes. This is the part that everybody remembers laughing quite a bit at um, when they were watching Wayne's World when that movie first came out, or at least that was the first time I ever heard this song. Oh, mamma mia, mamma mia. Mamma mia, let me go. So this is the sort of cosmic chorus let's call it that section then after that comes I would say the climax of the song it's sort of this abstract rage with guitar riffs and Freddie Mercury is in his full-on rock you know belt voice and everything is super rocking out and then at the end of that it kind of builds down and winds down into a tragic denouement that, that brings us back to the character from the beginning so I guess that's how I think of this song there's the choral intro the solo soliloquy, the totally wild cosmic chorus, the hard rock climax anguish section, and the tragic denouement, or denouement, if you want to pronounce it the proper French way. So that is five different sections in this song. There are a couple of really important bridges between those sections that could arguably be called their own sections, but I don't want to get too like pedantic about that. So we'll just think of it as five different sections. And I want to talk about each one because there's really cool stuff happening in each one. So let's start with that dream chorus intro is this the real life is this just fantasy so I love how the vocals sound in this beginning. I think they have this such a distinct sound that you hear this song and boom, you know exactly what you're listening to. Um, for starters, this is a, an example of multi-track recording. A lot of the choral stuff, you know, the choral sounding big multiple, you know, singers, lots of parts um, on this track are recorded with multiple people singing, you know, with, uh, with Brian May singing the low parts and Roger Taylor singing the high parts. But this intro is only Freddie Mercury. And I think that that's an important distinction in the two different choral sections of this song because it makes for a very, very different sound. So when you hear these notes, is this the real life? what you're hearing is, you know, four different versions of Freddie Mercury, whose voice is very, you know, sounds very close to his other recordings because it's his voice. And it creates a much sort of closer and denser sound. Now, the other thing that contributes to that is the actual arrangement, you know, the chord as it's, as it's placed and as he's singing it. So the four notes he's singing are these four notes. And when you put them together uh, and play them all at the same time, it sounds like this. So that's a G minor seventh chord. And remember, a voicing is the way that you take the notes of the chord and then actually arrange them on the piano. So you could voice a G minor seventh chord much bigger and more spread out. You know, it, maybe it would sound like this. But in this case, they put it really close together and it creates this very tight sound. 
If you remember on my last episode about ABBA's Dancing Queen, I talked quite a bit about lushness to the point where some of you probably don't ever want to hear the word lush again. But one of the keys to lushness, if you remember, is actually dissonance. So remember that G minor 7 chord could be voiced much more spread out and it wouldn't have that F and G right next to each other to create that whole step kind of tight dissonance. And the chord would be less lush, you know, it might sound like this. But when you put them close together, you get that tightness. And there's a lot of clever arranging like that throughout this section. So right after that line, you get the first time that the vocal harmonies kind of break at the line, no escape from reality. And one of Freddie's lines drops down a little bit lower. And that establishes just a slight increase in complexity in the vocal arrangement. From there comes the first major transition, which is a super important line, and it's the line, open your eyes, which is actually beautiful, because it's right when the piano comes in, and it dramatically increases the sonic landscape of the song, in a way that even if you don't, you know, if you're not paying attention at all to what's happening, it's very clear that something just happened, and here we go. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. So, you know, open your eyes, open the song. Here comes the piano. A couple of important things happen right here. The piano introduces a sort of arpeggio motif that's going to repeat a whole bunch through the song. It really lands um, on its own terms in just a couple of bars, but that's the first time that you hear it. And of course, this section also sets up Freddie's first solo line with the line, I'm just a poor boy, introducing the character. And it's also the first time that he's not singing as part of a chorus of identical versions of himself, but he's actually taken center stage and taken the lead vocals. I'm just a So what's happening here is an interesting contrast to the choral stuff that happens later in the song because it's still all just Freddie Mercury singing. So he's kind of weaving in and out of, you know, various choral versions of himself with a solo line. And then, of course, the the production, the panning is doing some cool stuff, too, where they'll be in the center and then they'll be on the left and they'll be on the right. You can tell that this was recorded at a time where people were still playing with stereo pan because just things weren't mono anymore. And the whole concept of stereo recording with a left and right channel that you could independently mess with in production was still fairly new you know it was it wasn't as new as it was when the Beatles were doing it but it was still pretty new there's something about the way that they play with it on this track and actually on a night at the opera in general you can just tell that a lot of these new production techniques multi-tracking stereo pan panning things in the middle of a track sweeping left and right they were just playing with them almost like toys it really has a very playful feel to it that's super cool because it was just a new thing it's it's very fun and charming i think so the next major thing that happens in bohemian rhapsody of course is john deacon comes in on the bass and the piano establishes once and for all the sort of piano motif that runs throughout this entire song so that section sounds like this to me I love that piano part. It's one of the most iconic things about this song. And it's so clever because it's very minimal, but it's it's very memorable. And I think that's a lot of times that's kind of the key to a really good little motif like that. So that piano line sounds like this. It's in B-flat, which is the chord that we finally kind of arrive on at the beginning of this next section, the soliloquy section. And it is a pretty simple line, really. It's just a B-flat arpeggio, and the crucial little 
touch of genius, the little thing that makes it stand out, are those octaves in the right hand. And it goes between octaves of a G to an F, which sounds like this. Now those octaves, it's just a very romantic sort of big, nice sound. It's a it's a common thing that you'll hear and a lot of piano players do, and it gives the song this sort of immediate grandeur. Then as the as the line progresses through the chorus, the piano motif develops and it traces that same shape through the next few chords, through a G minor up to a C minor. And each time you hear those octaves in the right hand. So it kind of just keeps you moving along and it feels very much like it's establishing this theme and then quickly developing it. Just killed a man Put a gun against his head Pulled my trigger, now he's dead This whole section is really a section where Freddie Mercury shows off his pretty amazing vocal control and vocal range. Obviously, when he's wailing out high notes like on Don't Stop Me Now or at the end of this or at the really intense parts of, you know, Somebody to Love, when when he's doing his sort of scream and his upper register, that's really impressive and that's a very distinctive Freddie Mercury sound. But actually, the in-studio recording of this is uh, this part of Bohemian Rhapsody is so impressive because he's going back and forth between his vocal register registers with such smoothness and control and kind of in a deliberate way that I think is really cool. And it's all kind of embodied by the line that sets up the entrance of Roger Taylor on the drums. So check this out. Now, the magic of the voice, and in this case, the male voice, really kind of exists in the space between the two primary registers, the two, you know, different voices. There's the head voice, which is when you're kind of up here. And then there's the chest voice, which is when you're down here and you're in your chest. Now, Freddie Mercury can belt with his chest really up high and he can sing much lower with his lighter head voice. But what he's doing here is this amazing jumping and blending between the two of them. That's the kind of thing that really amazing vocalists do. So he starts out with this beautiful jump from his full chest voice up into his head voice. And you can hear him lighten it up a little bit if you listen right here. You know, that's tricky. He's starting in his chest and he just jumps up and kind of just glosses over that break. Life had just begun. It's tricky. If you sing it all, it's really fun to try to follow along with him and just hear what he's doing and see if you can imitate it. Because he was coming up with this in the studio. You know, he was working out how he was going to sing this. He didn't have a Freddie Mercury to follow along with. So the next thing, he, now that he's up in his head voice, you know, mama, he's up there. He stays up there and then he works into this awesome transition where he belts out. Um, and now I've gone and thrown it all away. And right on all away, he belts back into his chest voice right when the drums come in. And it's this killer, like, kind of kick in the butt transition where the the band comes in right after he comes back out of his lighter head voice into his chest voice so check out that transition It's such a masterful performance and just so much fun to listen to how he does that and how well it works with the arrangement of the band. He's almost arranging his own um, vocal resonance like it's an instrument in the band. That's how much thought he's put into the way that he sings it. So then right after that, now that the drums and bass are in, he just lays in with this heavy belt on Mama and then ends that line with this ooh, where he holds the ooh and just perfectly fades it out. I mean, it's just, if you're going to belt, if you're going to sing really strongly, what control he's got. So listen to that line. Mama. 
<laughs> so, I mean, if I highlighted every single amazing Freddie Mercury vocal trick in this song, this episode would seriously be an hour and a half long. So I can't spend too much more time on that, but I really wanted to highlight it there because one of the really great pleasures of this song is just focusing in on Freddie Mercury's vocal performance and hearing when he's making those little register shifts as he jumps around because this whole melody is a lot of it. And he's just, he sings like a master on this thing in the studio. So this soliloquy section continues. This is kind of the longest section in the song, I think. And it's also the most kind of subtle and it has the most room for subtlety. So some of that subtlety is in Freddie's vocal performance. Also, I think that what Roger Taylor is doing on drums, it's actually the least subtle part of this, but it adds a whole lot of drama. Because remember, Brian May is still not playing at this point. Um, no matter how kind of rocking and dramatic this, this soliloquy section gets, he's still not in. And um, so it's really just bass and drums. So when you hear a section like this, bear that in mind that we're just listening to piano, bass, drums, and Freddie Mercury's voice. I love that little slide that John Deacon does on the bass. It's so he sort of just slides up to that resolution, sort of like. It's really tasty. There's kind of a lot of tasty bass playing on this beginning. I don't think he gets enough credit for uh, for how much he kind of ties this whole intro section together. So I mentioned that Brian May, Queen's guitarist, hadn't even come in yet. On this sort of second time through the refrain on the soliloquy, he makes himself known in a very subtle and kind of clever way. He plays the high notes that double those piano octaves from the piano motif. So you're hearing those same those same octaves that ring out, those kind of distinct octaves, but there's something else happening, some other little chimey ringing happening. And that's Brian May on the guitar. Do you hear it? It's kind of on the left channel. I love that. Instead of doing the, you know, the highest octaves um, on the guitar, that'd be the D and C, which is right up at the top of the electric guitar's range. They just put these symbols in on shivers down my spine to kind of conjure shivers going down my spine. It's pretty cool. So on the second refrain, Freddie does the same thing with his voice where he jumps up into his head voice and he does that same dramatic punch back down into his chest voice. But this time, a new instrument enters and it's not the drums. It is Brian May's guitar. And oh, what an entrance. Check this out. Gotta leave you all behind Mama. Now that is how you introduce an electric guitar on a rock song. You wait. Turns out that is actually a really effective trick, and it's a trick that Queen goes back to quite a few times in some of their most famous songs. I think of it as strategic Brian May deployment. Basically, it's easy to think of Queen as this hard rock band. You know, they're a rock band. And what do you think of when you think of a rock band? You usually think of electric guitar. However, because Freddie Mercury was a very good piano player and wrote a lot of his songs on the piano, many of their most famous songs, which a lot of which are written by Freddie Mercury, they didn't write every Queen song, but a lot of their most famous songs are written by him. They actually begin with piano, with Freddie Mercury singing with the rhythm section, and Brian May kind of doesn't have a super strong presence at the beginning of a whole lot of Queen songs. He comes in a little bit later, and it's a really cool trick. So many bands love to just begin with everybody or start with a guitar riff. Queen is so much more willing to begin with something else, begin with the guitar nowhere to be found, and then when the guitar comes in, it is 
a really big moment. Time for some examples. Take, for example, Don't Stop Me Now, totally killer song. Guitar doesn't come in until two-thirds of the way through. Most of the song sounds like this. And then, after this little breakdown, suddenly, here we go, guitar comes in. Don't stop me. Another good example is We Will Rock You, which has some very strategic Brian May deployment. This song, actually, the majority of this song is just Freddie Mercury singing with that sort of stomped beat. But when Brian May finally comes in, it's kind of just the end of the song. And so Brian May comes in and rocks out a little bit, and then the song ends. You can find some good examples of strategic Brian May deployment on songs like Killer Queen and Bicycle Race, both of which kind of he's in there a little bit in the mix, but then he really just comes to the fore later on to play usually a really, really good solo. And um, I think that maybe my favorite example of strategic Brian May deployment is on Somebody to Love, where he isn't in for the majority of the song. You know, it's just it's these these glorious pop chords and this sort of gospel-tinged choral stuff. You know, it sounds like this. So, you know, it's a testament to how big Queen can sound with no guitar in it. It's, it's a testament to how well they mix and arrange the bass and drums and vocal parts that it sounds so big because on Somebody to Love, when it's time for Brian May to come in, it's the bridge and oh man, stuff gets real. <laughs> oh man so it rocks super super hard right i mean and it's because the song took its time and they waited to introduce that guitar so when brian may comes in on those low muted you know chugging chords it's so dramatic and it gives it just opens everything up and it's the key really to to what makes queen work when they're at their best i think it's because they're they can be very restrained about their instrumentation and i think actually for all its excess bohemian rhapsody is also a very restrained arrangement and the fact that it takes brian and made this long to come in and then when he does it hits so hard i think is a testament to that so let's go back to brian may's entrance in bohemian rhapsody and listen to that one more time just to kind of appreciate yet again how hard it rocks Gotta leave you So at that point, the whole band is in. The guitar is in, the bass is in, the piano is in, drums are in, and the vocals are in. The last thing to introduce is actually what they introduce right here with this line. 
So on that line, Any Way the Wind Blows, it adds backup vocals from Brian May and Roger Taylor. I'm not actually sure if that's both of them there or one of them doubled. Not really positive about that. But it introduces a non-Freddie Mercury backup vocal part, which is the important thing. So after the whole first part of this song, all of the backup uh, vocal harmonies are this sort of magic sound because it's one voice doubled a whole lot of times. Open your eyes. With the introduction of vocals from the other members of the band, suddenly the choir becomes more of an actual choir, or at least starts to sound like a band with people singing backup vocals, which then is how the sort of cosmic chorus section that, that we're building up to um, is completely recorded. You know, That's recorded with all three people singing, and that adds a level of textural variety to the voices that makes everything sound bigger and more varied and a little bit more dynamic, and also more normal and kind of grounded and a little bit less mysterious and dreamlike, because it doesn't have that fundamental impossibility of hearing one person's voice layered a whole bunch of times. So from this section, the Brian May has been strategically deployed, and that means that it is time for one of his most famous guitar solos of all time, the guitar solo that sort of bridges the gap between the solo soliloquy section and the cosmic chorus. And it's a pretty cool solo for a number of reasons. Let's just listen to it. So the first cool thing in that solo that there is quite a bit of is contrary motion. Now, we talked about contrary motion when we talked about Abba's Dancing Queen. Contrary motion is the idea of the of the melody moving in a different direction than some other harmony, or just harmonies moving in divergent directions. And that's actually happening a lot. If you listen to the very beginning of this guitar part, the guitar solo moves up while the bass and the harmony moves down. So the guitar solo goes like this. but the bass and the harmony go like this. So when you hear them together, it sounds like this. And then you hear it again here, where the guitar goes even higher to the kind of glorious high note, and yet again they set it up so that the bass and the harmony go down. So just listen for both of those, bass going down, guitar going up. So there's a lot of careful arrangement there where there's this nice juxtaposition between what's happening in the lead guitar and what's happening everywhere else. And that gives just like a nice sense of, of variety and motion to this, this whole line. Then of course the way they get out of it is really cool. There's just this huge chromatic, which is just moving by half steps, this huge chromatic descending line that leads into the next section and sets up the most dramatic harmonic and tonal shift in the entire song. So I'm pretty sure I've got this right. That line starts on an F and then just descends. If you just play every note, black and white keys, right next to each other, it just walks down chromatically from an F down to an A. So listen for that and I'll play along. I know everybody tends to hear the guitar solo here, but listen to actually what the bass is playing and listen to how they just zero in on that A and they kind of walk down to it. Uh, and I'll, I'll play along so you can hear it. And 
And that is how you set up maybe the most outrageous stylistic left turn in rock history. You're rocking out in E flat and B flat and everything is hunky-dory. And then suddenly you do a big chromatic run and boom, you're in A major, A major, a completely different key. And you're playing a completely different tempo, a completely different groove. Everything is completely changed. And a guy sings, I see a little silhouette of a man. And you're off to the races. The sheer unabashed goofiness and ridiculousness of this section is what really won me over to this song the very first time I heard it. I think it's probably true of a lot of people who heard it. And it's just the fact that they go all in for it. I mean, it's a mix of the way they're all singing, the way they're all really going for it. The fact that Roger Taylor is hitting a high A already. He hits a high B flat later. You know, there's no guitar. They're back to this just piano, drums. And they're doing so much with panning, with putting things in the center and then putting things to the side so that there's this whole sense of space and motion. And it's so dramatic. You could even call it melodramatic. And it's just ridiculous. Galileo! 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 Galileo I'm just a poor boy and nobody loves me. He's just a poor boy from a poor now, when he says, I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me, that's actually a cool callback to the very beginning of the song. It's actually a double whammy harmonic and lyrical callback, which I didn't notice the entirety of until I was really, you know, learning this song uh, to record this episode. So he sings, I'm just a poor boy, which of course he sings during that dream choir part at the very beginning. I'm just a poor boy. But there's also the matter of the harmony that he does it over the second time during this cosmic chorus section. Listen to the harmony that he sings, I'm just a poor boy, nobody loves me, over. Just a poor boy, nobody loves me. So those chords on piano sound like this. Does that sound familiar at all? Because it should. It is the same chord inversions and the same phrase that happens much earlier in the song, right here. So for all the obvious harmonic and stylistic differences between that sort of cosmic chorus wild section and the more restrained dreamlike beginning, he's actually woven a really cool little connection between the two harmonically. It goes from this... Easy come, easy go, little high... And then the same thing with the same chords is right here. I really love that. Uh, this song kind of just weaves in on itself in a lot of really clever ways. And I think that's a neat way of tying that very subdued, dreamlike beginning to this totally weird and wild chorus section in the middle. Now what they're doing throughout this whole section is a whole lot of going little and then going big and then going little again and then going big. They'll come down to this tiny little piano part and then suddenly the drums will come in and the and the vocals will jump and pan out to the far left and right and then they'll go back. There is on the um, anniversary version of this album, you can listen to just the audio of the, um, of the vocal takes from this section and it's really fun to listen to and very instructive. Uh, here's just a little sampling of that. Easy come, easy go, will you let me go? Bismillah! No, we will not let you go! Let him go! Bismillah! We will not let you go! Let him go! Bismillah! We will not let you go! Let me go! We will not let you go! Let me go! Never, 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 never,
Mamma Mia, Mamma Mia. Mamma Mia, let me go. It's so fun to listen to because it really just highlights what they're doing with solo parts and then panning out for the full chorus that's panned out to the sides and then bringing everybody to the center and having it all super doubled. Doubling, Doubling vocals, vocals is a really, really fascinating, fascinating uh, studio, studio trick that is, is kind of actually hard to explain, but there were a lot of vocal tracks used for this recording. I don't really know how many. Um, I've seen reports of you know dozens or whatever, but they recorded everybody a lot of times. And it isn't just like there was one part and each person sang it once. Instead, everybody sang each part more than once. And you get this kind of fattening that happens when you when somebody records their part over and over and over again. It's like, uh, there should be a song about it. Isn't there a song about it? I feel like there's a song about it. If you record your voice singing more than once, it always sounds a whole lot bigger. Because you breathe and sing notes differently. So it adds a subtle chorus effect. Everybody knows that song, right? That The one about recording your voice more than once. Like it starts out talking about chorus effects, then they talk about adding harmony. And then you add a double harmony part. And that makes things sound even bigger. And the addition of a third double harmony part makes it sound like you're a freaking choir. So, you know, there's like a lot of creative stuff you can do by doubling things. We don't need to... And then one voice rings Overdo out. it. And the others come in. It's an effective trick okay. for making a sense of space. And even your falsetto sounds better. Thanks to the wonders of modern recording technology. <laughs> okay. So thanks to the wonders of modern recording technology, Queen was able to do a lot of really cool doubling and fattening of their voices. You can take one person in the studio, say, screwing around with a microphone, and you can make a pretty huge sounding choral, uh, choral soundscape. Of course, you can do that now in 2019 with modern recording, you know, software makes it even easier. Uh, back when Queen recorded this, you know, they had to use tape, they had to record everything to tape and then re-record and re remix and submix and downmix everything. So it was a much more involved process. But basically, because of the technology they had available to them, three singers could sound like this. Has a devil put aside for me, for me, for me. Pretty killer, and especially killer a note from Roger Taylor there. That's a high B flat. That is a high note, man. I mean, I can push my falsetto to about an A flat, an A on a good day. Being able to squeeze out a high B flat like that at the absolute peak of your range in the recording studio is uh, no small feat for a male vocalist. So props, Roger Taylor. I think that this section here, this for me, for me, for me, where they stack up the vocals is a really cool transition to the next section, in part because it's a really abrupt transition. Um, it's nowhere near as smooth as that chromatic transition down to the A that set up the sort of cosmic chorus. You know, we're getting into the anguish rage climax now and to get into that they build this huge note you know roger taylor hits this ultra ultra high note and then if you listen to the isolated vocal track you'll hear there's a hard cutoff on the vocal recording they don't fade out they don't hear him end the note it's actually probably kind of hard to end a note that high they just almost like end the tape they just press stop listen to how abrupt it is on the isolated vocal track for me for me for me that's it. 
it just cuts like that. That's not an accident or anything. Um, initially, actually, I kind of thought that maybe they just cut off the special bonus recording there. But if you listen to where it, to how it sounds with the actual band, and you'll hear the same thing. That high note just cuts right off. And if you listen for it, I'm about to play it. It's immediately followed by the most massive, clippy, bodacious snare drum hit ever that sets up the new groove and the sort of anguish rock uh, climax of the song. So listen for that. Listen for the snare drum hit and listen for that hard cutoff on um, that vocal chord as well. Man, that is a bodacious snare drum. Listen to that thing. Listen to how that sounds when it hits. So between the vocals just doing that bam hard cut off and that snare smacking down um, to set up to set up that next section, it's a really dramatic and sort of abrupt shift. And one of the reasons that it's so dramatic is because not only does the key change, it goes back to E flat from A, which is a pretty significant harmonic shift. You know, the cosmic chorus section is sort of centered around A major. We're back in E flat like we were in the earlier two sections, but also the groove completely changes and it goes from this sort of up-tempo regular 4-4 time to what's called 12-8 time. And basically, long story short, the difference between 12-8 and 4-4 is that the way that they're grooving has this groovy triplety bounce to it. So they're playing and it's all based around these triplets. So the difference between a more standard rock beat which would just be like boom boom bop boom 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 bop boom 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 bop boom, boom, one two three four and a 12 8 beat is that you get a kind of a more big dig it dig it dig it kind of a feel to it and that's the groove that queen goes into here so bear that in mind we're going into this kind of you know triplety feel and you can really hear it in everything you can hear it in the drums boom 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 it's all very triplety and um and it's it really informs the way that this section feels and why it rocks so hard. You know, when Wayne and all of his friends bang their heads in the car, they're banging on the downbeats, you know, they're moving their heads on the downbeats, but the feel has got those triplets in there that the 12-8 uh, groove really reinforces. So now we're just in full-on rock-out guitar riff mode. Check it out. Everything is built around those triplets, you know. All these fills are just very triplet-based, which give it a kind of certain bounce. So as Freddie Mercury sings Just Gotta Get Right Out of Here, the entirety of Queen is tasked with taking us right out of here into the next section of the song. And this is probably the most difficult and involved transition in the entire song because they have to get from this really hard-driving 12-8 hard rock section back to kind of reprise what they were doing at the beginning for the denouement at the end. And it's a pretty cool transition. It's the most metrically complicated thing in the song. Let's just listen to it and then pick it apart a little bit. So you got guitars handing off to other guitars, handing off to the piano like hotcakes. You got the time holding still, but you got some metrically modulating melodies happening over it. The whole thing goes by really quickly, and it's easy to miss what's happening, but uh, there's quite a bit there. So for starters, you can hear that first line is ba-ba-da, ba-ba-da, ba-da-ga. Sounds like this. 
The key is to just keep counting that four beat because it's got those triplets implied because we're in twelve eight. It's it's kind of divided up into the triplets, but as long as you keep the pulse going, you can count it. After that comes a couple of lines that are just straight triplets. These ones are easy to count. And then things get a little bit a little bit squirrelier because the guitar starts playing up a line that's a little closer to that first rhythm, so a kind of stranger rhythm and harder to follow. While the band performs a rallentando or ritardando, they, the band slows way down as the line happens, and the guitar goes into a power chord in the right channel, starts playing the line in the left channel, and then hands off to the piano, which takes it off in the center and picks up the line. So you'll kind of hear the guitar start it over in the left, then the guitar on the right will play a chord, then in the middle the piano kind of comes rising up out of the ashes playing this line that also slows down the time and then they all land together on the downbeat it's a lot to keep straight but um see if you can listen to it it's basically left right center downbeat It's a really, really good transition and a kind of complicated one. Um, the best way to think of it really is that the guitar is holding the time steady all the way from when that bow, no, 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 like from when that riff begins all the way up through this section and then through this transition right until those chords play, and then the piano kind of reclaims the song. So this is Brian May not leaving the song, but at least stepping away from center stage and handing the, the control of the groove back to the piano and the piano takes back over. So with all of that in mind, listen to that transition one more time. Just try to hear the way that the guitar sets up the one rhythm, then the other triplet rhythm, then it starts walking up, goes into the chords, hands off to the piano, the piano slows things down, and the band all come in together. And then with all of that done and all that buildup complete, the whole band comes in for a big epic slow jam where everybody gets to show off. We've got the choir and we've got the piano and we've got the guitar bouncing between left and right playing some nice guitar minis with multi-tracked guitar parts. We even have a nice little bass fill there in the middle. It's all very wonderful. So just enjoy this next section. <laughs> And then it's time for Freddie Mercury to take us home through a long winding turnaround to the finale. What a song and what a journey. I think that this song, more than so many other songs, feels like a journey. It's like a saga. And it's because of that through-composed nature. It's because of the form of the song that they were so ambitious and decided to try to tie together these five very different parts um, in all these clever ways with all of these harmonic callbacks through an unbelievably complicated and winding harmonic progression that's just not really the kind of thing that you would see in many in many types of music. You know, it's probably close 
closest to prog rock. But even there, this this Bohemian Rhapsody definitely it has its own thing, its own distinct deal. I think that comes through really clearly if you go and listen to cover versions of this song, of which there are so many. So many bands like to cover Bohemian Rhapsody, and yet they don't usually make it their own. That's not really the way that you cover Bohemian Rhapsody. I haven't obviously listened to every single version, so there may be some people who do some really funny and weird things with it. But by and large, the most well-known covers of this song are just note-for-note recreations of it. And that's because the song is so distinctly its own thing. It is kind of uncoverable in that way, or it's uninterpretable. You can't reinterpret Bohemian Rhapsody very easily anyways, because it's so well-defined and so its own thing that you just, it would be almost a futile effort. So one cover version that I do want to shout out just really quickly is the Pentatonix acapella cover. Pentatonix is a really good acapella group. I actually saw when they won that old reality like competition show, The Sing-Off, which was a very fun show to watch um, as a bunch of acapella groups would compete. And um, they do a version of it that's fun partly because it is a note-for-note remake, but of course they're doing it with just their voices. And there's one part that I really like, and that's during Brian May's entrance and then his solo. They use a kind of a distorted megaphone to get this electric guitar sound that I think actually sounds pretty awesome. So here's just a clip of that section. Pretty goofy and pretty fun and pretty impressive that a group of five singers could recreate so closely something that, you know, took a whole lot of tracks in the recording studio to make. Well, that'll about do it for my thoughts on Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, an incredible song from an incredible album, A Night at the Opera, that you should really go listen to, uh, made famous most recently by a maybe less than incredible movie, but hey, it's still good music, man. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for sticking around for another pretty long episode. I know I said during the Dancing Queen episode, that was an unusually long episode, and now we've done a long one again. I say in my defense that this was probably the most ambitious song I could have possibly picked to focus on for this show, so hey, sometimes they go long. I do want to keep this show a little bit shorter than this, so we'll be a little bit shorter next time. Please, as always, continue to spread the word. Tell your friends. Tell people you think might like the show. Thanks so much to everyone who's left a review or a rating on the Apple Podcast app that helps me get seen. If you have haven't done that and want to consider it, please do so. As always, you can email me at strongsongspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at Kirk Hamilton. That's K-I-R-K Hamilton. You can now join my mailing list. The link is down in the show notes. So please do that if you'd like to hear a little bit more from me about this show and other things that I'm up to. And yeah, thanks so much for listening. I'll be back in two weeks with yet another Strong Song.